smells Jesus-y. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. God has spoken in many ways, but now well, uh, New England is a region in the northeastern United States. It was settled throughout the 17th century by English Puritans, Christians who were dissatisfied with public Christianity in England. So a bunch of them moved to the other side of the world seeking to start a new and better society. They started a new life and they were all in it together. And I imagine they were fiercely loyal they built simple timber-framed houses. They grew and ate mostly corn. They uh, mostly drank alcohol made from corn because the water would make them sick. Men had long hair and long beards. Women, just long hair. And no wonder that was the fashion because uh, hairdressing and surgery was all one profession. Anyway, I haven't been able to find enough detail to fact-check this, but the way the story goes was that in New England, in the 17th century, there was a woman who complained to her pastor that her husband was sinning against her. Specifically, she said her husband was neglecting their sex life. So the pastor went to speak to the man with the woman and try and you know, encourage him, reason with him, but he refused to listen. So the woman uh, told their church and so the church told the man he needed to do his duty as a husband, be a godly man, look after and care for his wife in this way, or he wasn't behaving as a Christian. He refused to listen, and so the church excommunicated him. That means they made him no longer a member of the church, and they treated him as, well, he was welcome to come to church like anyone is, but he was no longer a member of the church because he wasn't acting like a Christian. Well, I don't know how the story ended. I hope he came to his senses because that's the aim of this process that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Step one, talk to them. Step two, take one or two others. Step three, tell the community. Step four, treat them as an outsider or love them but don't trust them. Uh, Jesus says, treat them as you would a Gentile or a pagan or a tax collector, depending on what translation you have there. Um, so the obvious question is, how did Jesus treat those people who Jews regarded as outsiders? Well, uh, Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He was constantly uh, criticized for welcoming and eating with the outsiders. So Jesus isn't saying being mean to them because Jesus says, don't be mean to outsiders. He says, love and include them and try and welcome them in. Try and befriend them, uh, draw them to come and join in with God's people. Uh, but... You can't trust them to be part of God's people when they're saying or acting as if they're not part of God's people. So apart from the culturally foreign language, I think this is very simple, right? Uh, I don't think this is rocket science. I don't think this is particularly unique to uh, the Bible. It's pretty simple. Step one, just go and talk to them privately. Try and sort it out. Step two, Take a couple of friends with you to try and talk some sense into them. Step three, you're going to have to, you know, make it a public issue if they're going to not respond and do the right thing. And step four, well, you've got to, in some sense, have some kind of separation uh, to, to protect yourself. It seems to me the problem we have with this is not if we feel sinned against, 
will we be faithful and go through the steps? The problem is, if someone accuses us of sin, our reaction in the modern Western world is, well, nobody has the right to tell me what to do. I have to say, in uh, seeing people trying to do this process faithfully uh, as, as Christian brothers and sisters, when uh, someone is accused of uh, sin and, uh, you know, people try and do the right thing to sort it out, I have seen some incredible creativity in people uh, trying, to, trying to say that they're doing the process while completely sabotaging it. So I think there are two common obstacles that uh, get in the way of us really embracing really obeying what Jesus says here. The first obstacle is thinking that this passage says the church is always right. That's not what it says. So let me explain that first. And then the second obstacle is divisions in the church. How can I uh, submit to what the church says if the church is divided? So we're going to deal with both of those problems. Uh, we're going to deal with most of the text, but I'm not going to work systematically through the text because I think the most fruitful thing is to address both of those obstacles. So first obstacle, ooh, Ding, goes my music stand. I hope that didn't sound horrible through the microphone. Uh, first obstacle, the misconception that this passage says the church is always right. I think the best way to see that's not what he's saying is to look at the last verse. Verse 20, Jesus says, For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Okay, Jesus being with us is a big deal. Back in his first chapter, Matthew tells us that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, so this is a reference to the Old Testament, and Matthew's showing us that Jesus being with us is now how God is with us. So when uh, Matthew quotes Jesus saying, when two or three are gathered, there I will be with him, Matthew the Gospel writer is, wants us to all be going, this is a big deal. So what does it mean for Jesus to be with us? Well, what did it mean in the Old Testament for God to be with people? Well, that's throughout the Old Testament, but here's one really super clear explanation at the start of the book of Joshua. I'm going to read Joshua 1, verses 1 to 9. Uh, this is uh, the book where God leads the people of Israel who he's freed from slavery, he now leads them into the promised land and enables them to uh, drive out the peoples who are there, defeat the peoples who are there, destroy the peoples who are there so that they can inherit the promised land. And so the start of the book is God commissioning Joshua to lead the people. Joshua 1, 1 to 9 goes like this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then... You and all these people get ready to cross the river Jordan into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So he said, God says to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. What does it mean for God to be with Joshua? 
Well, straight away, you should be able to see it doesn't mean Joshua will always be right because God's going to be with Joshua the way he was with Moses. Was God with Moses so that Moses never did anything wrong? No, Moses is not going into the promised land because of his sin against God. So God promising to be with Joshua doesn't guarantee that Joshua will always get God's ways right. In fact, repeatedly he says, it's going to be with you to do what I've planned to do through you. So when God says to uh, Joshua, I'll give you every place where you set your foot, that's not an open license for Joshua to lead the people anywhere and God will give them the land. No, it's I'll give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses, the places I promised. And then he, just to be clear, he gives the boundaries of where it is. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite countries, the Mediterranean Sea, the West. Everywhere you set your foot, in the places where I'm telling you to go and set your foot. Uh, it means that uh, you can be strong and courageous because I will be with you. I'll never leak you, leave you nor forsake you. I will lead, you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. God has promised what he's going to do. Now he's promised to do it through Joshua. And saying, I will be with you, is a way of saying, I'm going to do it. The thing I've promised to do, I'm going to do through you. Uh, and more specifically, because God is promising to do his plan through Joshua, it's re it requires that Joshua follows God's plan. So, going on from verse 7, Be strong and co very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So you see there's two things going on. God is giving Joshua this incredible comfort and encouragement so that he can be strong and courageous. I am going with you. I am going to give you success. I am going to work my plan through you. God is not promising to work some other plan through Joshua. He's promising to work his plan through Joshua. That's what it means for him to be with Joshua. Because he's promising to work his plan through Joshua, that obviously requires Joshua to stick to God's plan. Did you notice how carefully that was emphasized? Right? Be careful to obey all the law. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, that you may be successful. Keep this book of the law always on your lips, right? Keep talking about it. Meditate it on, on it day and night. Think about it all the time so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Uh, when God promised Joshua that he was going to be with him, gave him that incredible comfort and assurance, that was not a guarantee that Joshua would always follow God's way. It required that Joshua always follow God's way. What about Jesus promising to be with his people? Well, similarly, in Matthew chapter 28, the very end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus commissioned his disciples to make disciples from every nation, and he promised to be with them. 
Listen to what that means and what it requires. Matthew 28, verses 15 to 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Great comfort, great encouragement, great assurance to go and be strong and courageous in carrying out God's plan. So it's a big deal. But what does it mean? Well, it's in the context of telling them to go and do his plan of making disciples of all nations. So to promise to be with them is Jesus promising that he will do his work through his disciples. He'll make them successful in carrying out his plan. And so what does that require? Baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching other people to obey everything I've commanded you. In other words, it is just assumed that it requires the disciples to obey Jesus' teaching themselves. So, Jesus promised to be with his disciples. That means he's committed to working his plan through them. That requires that they follow his plan. Now, in Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus promises, When two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. That means Jesus promises to carry out his plan as we gather as his followers. And that requires us to follow his plan. Right now, that's a fantastic encouragement. Jesus says, I'm fulfilling God's purpose through you guys. We are all in it together. I am committed to you. And of course, that requires us to follow his teaching. To gather in Jesus' name does not involve using Jesus' name as some kind of magic incantation. You know, if we say in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, Amen, uh, God puts some sort of magical requirement on God for him to do it. No, no, no. It's saying we're trying to pray according to what Jesus wants, what uh, Jesus' plan is. Uh, and uh, because uh, God, Jesus is working his plan through us, God is working his plan through us, uh, we respond by following his teaching together. We gather in Jesus' name. It means we're seeking to follow Jesus' plan, follow Jesus' teaching. That's what we're doing together. That's one of the reasons that reading the Bible and thinking about it together and having someone explain it is one of the main things we do when we gather. And at the moment, we can't gather in person because of COVID-19. We all need to do our part to slow the spread. It's disappointing not to see each other face to face. It's disappointing not to feel the energy of a crowd of people around you. It's disappointing not to be able to shake hands and hug and all of that stuff. It will be so great to get together properly in a few months' time. But in the meantime, we gather in Jesus' name as best we can. We gather to follow Jesus' teaching. 
we still are looking at God's word and encouraging each other and praying together and seeking to help each other to obey Jesus. And so as we gather online as best we can in Jesus' name, Jesus promises to work his plan through us. Jesus is with us. Well, what does this all have to do with uh, when somebody sins against you or when someone accuses me of sin and those four steps that Jesus talked about? Well, let me ask, what kind of people does Jesus choose to work his plan through? What kind of people does Jesus make this promise to? Does Jesus promise to be with, I don't know, the impressive people? Does Jesus just recruit to people to his church who are the good people or the smart people or the rich people or the talented people or the emotionally resilient people? No. Jesus saves little ones. Jesus saves lost ones. Jesus saves sinners. That's you and me. That's Jesus' plan. To be kind and gracious and forgiving and put up with people. That's how Jesus works his plan through us. Not by getting the good people or snapping his fingers to instantly make us perfect. No, no, no. Jesus works his plan through us by being patient and kind and growing us and rebuking us and encourage, putting up with us. That's how Jesus works his plan through us. And it's a huge plan. It's not like Jesus' plan is small. Jesus is taking over the world, if you are not aware. That's his plan. He is spreading his message throughout the world, calling all people to turn and follow him as their leader. And he's promised that one day he will come back and the kind of power, God's resurrection power that enabled him to conquer death, enabled him to walk on water, enabled him to heal diseases, he will exercise that power to force every knee to bow to him. Uh, God, Jesus, God's son, is working his plan to make the whole world new through his people. As we grow in loving each other and loving other people, as we bring our world's needs to God in prayer, and especially as we spread the message of Jesus to the whole world. Jesus is working his plan through us losers. When someone accuses me of sinning against them and goes through these steps of trying to get the church to help me to see that I'm wrong, the temptation is to think, what right does anyone have to tell me what to do? What right do those people have to tell me what to do? And Jesus says to me at that moment, those are my people. I'm with those people. Those are the people that I'm committed to working my plan through. That doesn't mean they're right. Well, it does mean that we have to be loyal to God's people. They might not always be right. But they are the people, we are the people, that Jesus is committed to being with, that he's committed to working his plan through. So we need to work Jesus' plan together. 
But that brings us to our next problem. What about when the church is divided? Uh, you can ask that in a very big way. There are churches all around the world that have all sorts of different ideas. You can ask it in a very uh, local, immediate way. What about if someone accuses me of sin and we can't sort it out and so it gets taken to the church and 50% of the church agree with the person who's accused me, 50% agree with me. How, how does that help? Well, in the early to middle 19th century in the USA, there were a lot of denominations that split over the issue of slavery. And so depending on which church you were a member of, you could get taught that it's okay to have slaves as long as you treat them well, or you could get taught if you have slaves at all, it's wrong no matter how you treat them. Now, I don't have a specific historical incident, but I think it's easy to imagine the question that this raises. Let's imagine Joe and Mo were Christian men who owned slaves uh, in the USA in the 19th century. Uh, Joe goes to a church that believes that slavery is okay as long as you treat your slaves well. In fact, Joe is a fine, upstanding citizen. He treats his slaves very well, so his church makes him an elder. Mo is in a church where they come to the conclusion that slavery is always wrong. Joe tries to treat his slaves as well as he can, but members of the church come to him and say, look, we think slavery is always wrong. You need to stop having slaves. And Mo says, I, I can't make a living. I can't feed my family without using slaves. And so he doesn't listen. So they take it to the church. The church says, look, you can't be a member of our church. You're not acting as a Christian. And so they kick him out of the church. Joe and Mo, superficially, are the same. They're doing the same thing. How can Jesus say, whatever the church decides, that's what you've got to stick by? Well, just to say it again, Jesus is not saying the church is always right. Clearly, one of these churches is wrong. Jesus is saying, these people who are doing their best to follow me, doing their best to follow my teaching, you've got to be loyal to them regardless. Now, I'm not talking about churches that say, we're a church because we don't believe Jesus is Lord. We don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. We don't believe God exists. Prayer is really a form of meditation. I'm not talking about churches that say they're following Jesus' teaching and are not following any of Jesus' teaching. I'm talking about people who are following Jesus' teaching and then come to differences of interpretation. What do you do then? You've got to be loyal to the church, but that doesn't solve the problem because your church might be divided over an issue. So I think the key at this point is to ask the question, Jesus' promise to be with his people, how does that connect with that series of steps of dealing with a sin? Let me uh, read those verses for you again. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. At what point does Jesus' promise kick in? At what point in the process is Jesus with them? Matthew 18, from verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Okay, so at what point in the process is Jesus with his people? Well, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. And so, well, it starts with two people, doesn't it? One person goes to another person and says, I think you've sinned. I feel like I can't trust you. Now, if this person responds, that's terrible because I'm a Christian. We need to sort this out. If you've got two Christians gathering, trying to follow Jesus together, Jesus is with them. Uh, if this, one of these people, if, now if these people can't sort it out, it might be they start wondering whether the other person is really following Jesus. So then you get one or two other people involved, and now there's definitely, out of the four of you, you've got to agree that at least two of you are trying to follow Jesus. So at that point, Jesus is with you. You should be saying, this is a group of Jesus' people. Jesus has promised to work his plan through us. That requires us to follow his, follow his teaching. Because we love Jesus, we need to make this work. Because we are loyal to Jesus, we need to be loyal to us. So a lot of the um, issues that people have with this passage is as you escalate up to the higher levels, you can get into this whole historical debate about what the biblical structure for the church is uh, so that you can make sure you're doing this process correctly. Well, that's a whole nother series of Bible studies, which I'm very happy to do another time. But let me just say, if you let an issue like this escalate to that point, you are already doing it wrong. In fact, did you notice what Jesus says? If they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as an outsider. In other words, if you're serious about following Jesus, under normal circumstances, you would expect to be able to sort it out before you get to this point. That's really the last resort, not the ideal process. So let me make some, some practical suggestions. If you are accusing someone else of sin, because you think that's the right thing to do, because you feel betrayed or something like that, or if someone is accusing you of sin, let me suggest some practical tips to do this process well. Firstly, seek to serve the other person. Uh, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So no matter what your doubts are or fears or concerns about the other person in the arrangement, uh, you, Jesus is not going to let you off the hook for loving that person. Love your enemies. That's the worst case scenario of who's coming to talk to you. Second, seek agreement. Uh, try to agree on the facts. If you can't agree on the facts, try and agree on the hurt person's feelings. Uh, and if you can't agree on that, at least agree about Jesus being Lord, about the fact that you're trying to obey Jesus together. Seek agreement. Thirdly, if you can't, if that doesn't get you to the point of being able to sort it out in a way that you're both satisfied. Thirdly, agree on a mediator, right? Rather than saying, okay, what do I have to do to uh, manipulate you into getting what I want? 
or what can I get away with doing as a power play to, no, 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 you're trying to serve each other. So Jesus is with us. We want to work this out for his sake. What's the best way to do that? Find someone you both trust and ask them to sort it out. And the fourth step's really very simple. Do what the mediator says. Now, some of you are still thinking, but hang on a second, what right does that person have to tell me what to do? Well, it's very simple. You've asked them. You've decided this is someone you trust. If you cannot find a Christian brother or sister in the world who you trust to tell you when you are out of line, you've really got to ask the question whether you trust Jesus to tell you when you're out of line. That is why Jesus can say this, right? If, if you are saying there is no one in the world I can trust to tell me I'm out of line, then Jesus is asking, what makes you think you're sincere about repenting and following me? That's the problem for Mo, the guy who was kicked out of his church for not getting rid of his slaves. See, uh, Joe, if Jesus can tell if Joe's genuinely trying to follow him. I mean, sure, he's self-deceived about slavery being a good idea. But Jesus is not going to be deceived. If Joe is sincerely trying his best to follow Jesus, then, well, he gets saved despite his sin. And Jesus can also tell whether Mo is sincere about doing his best to follow Jesus. And if there is no one you will trust to tell you you are out of line, it's hard to see how you can be sincere about trusting Jesus to tell you. So, uh, Paul, in the, his letter, 1 Corinthians 5, he's writing to a divided church, and he gives pretty much this same piece of advice. Get yourself sorted out, whatever it takes, because Jesus is worth it. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 3 to 7, puts it like this. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do not ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Right? You see, logic, how can, how can there be no one you can trust with that? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? In our day, we kind of go, you've got to be kidding. There's nothing that's worth being wrong for. There's nothing that's worth putting up. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is putting up with those things all the time in his church. This is just an opportunity for you to realize that and get on board. Jesus is committed to working his plan through his neighbor, through his people. Ugh. We need to be committed to working his plan through his people. Uh, kids, if you've got a picture ready to show, I'm going to pray. And then uh, Mr. Eric will close up the service and you'll have a chance to show your pictures. But let me pray first. Heavenly Father, please help us to be realistic about our own shortcomings. Please help us to... Uh, be so transformed, so thankful for your grace and forgiveness to us that we can see that it's not a big deal for us to put up with others, regardless of whether they're right. Father, help us rather to be struck anew 
that Jesus would work his plan for the world through people like us. And so help us to be loyal to his people. Amen. Thank you for listening to Smells Jesusy, a podcast from Three Crosses Church. Tune in each week for new episodes or visit us at threecrosseschurch.com for more content.